Welcome to Beauty is Eternal, in-depth interviews that inspire. I'm your host, Caitlin. Our episode today is called Rising Conductor Star Knees on Ock. Discusses artistic entitlement, serendipity, haters, sexism, and more. Nissan Ock is en route to becoming one of the top conductors in the world. Recently chosen as one of Forbes 30 Under 30, she is completing her PhD at the University of South Carolina and was recently appointed as the music director of the Oratorio Society of Richmond, Virginia. Nissan has conducted concerts in Vienna at the Wiener Concert House and Palai Eschenbach, as well as at music festivals in Parnu, Luzern, Istanbul, and the United States. Born in Istanbul, she started her musical career at age nine and went on to study at the Istanbul Fine Arts High School. From there, she studied composition at Istanbul Bilgi University and attended the Conservatory of Minar Sinan Fine Arts University. Next, she completed her master's degree program in orchestral conducting at the Aaron Copland School of Music, also known as CUNY. Her contemporary music repertoire includes composers such as Edgard Ferreze, John Williams, Steve Reich, Aaron Copland, Erkis Ventur, and George Perla. She has studied under famous contemporary conductors including Pavel Yarvi, Nima Yarvi, Donald Portnoy, George Hurst, Tito Munoz, and Gerard Schwartz. You can find out more about Nissan and follow her on Instagram under the username Chill Harmonic. How did Nissan go from living in Istanbul to New York to South Carolina? What challenges does she face being a female conductor, and at that, a female conductor from the Middle East? What role have coincidences played in her life? What memory techniques does she use to remember a score before she conducts an orchestra? How does she deal with internet trolls who spend eight paragraphs writing mean things about her? Nissan is opening up to us today all the way from South Carolina and answering all of these questions and many more. Welcome to being a guest on the show, Nissan. I'm really excited to have you as a guest. Thank you, Caitlin. Very nice to meet you. <laughs> and nice to see you all the way in South Carolina. I know. And you're in Boston, so yeah. we're not in Europe at all. <laughs> Funnily enough, yeah. <laughs> How did you first get interested in music? Do you have musicians in your family? How did it happen? I was very into music since I was, I don't know, born. Can you say that? <laughs> since I <laughs> yeah. knew myself. But I didn't really start playing an instrument until eight or nine or so. I think I was at the third grade. <laughs> and it was a funny coincidence, actually. I was in the choir, elementary school's choir. And my teacher came to me one day, the music teacher, and said, hey, you played the guitar, right? Uh, can you bring your guitar like next week or something? Maybe I can put you as a solo for the choir. And I did not play the guitar. <laughs> but we had a guitar at home 
it was like a birthday gift or something like that for me. But I didn't really touch it. At that time, my stepdad gave it to me. But I was like kind of rebellious. <laughs> so I didn't <laughs> want to play. <laughs> but when my teacher came and asked me to play, I was like, okay, now I have to play. So I went back home, told my mom that I want to take guitar lessons, and that's how I started music. <laughs> so she confused you with somebody else that had played the guitar? I think so, yeah. Because <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, that's not me, but I'm going to lie to her. <laughs> <laughs> so your first instrument was the guitar? What came yeah. after that? It was piano right after. Not right after, I think five years or so after. I started playing like at the age of 13, so four years, four or five, I don't know. When I got into the music high school in Istanbul, and there you have to play the piano. But then I liked the piano better. <laughs> Not better, I don't want to say better. Things happened during the high school too. My teacher that I adored so much decided to go teach at the university level instead. So I didn't really have anyone like, yeah, I didn't have a teacher one straight semester. And then I had substitute teacher for one year. And then finally at my last year of high school, I had an actual teacher. So it was very confusing. And then during that period, I kind of started practicing more piano. And then I started composing. So I just did that instead. It sounds like you did a lot of learning and practicing on your own then, because you didn't have one mentor. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, because I always believe that people students need to be their own mentor more than their teachers because teachers will teach you whatever they know but actually you have to know what's missing in your practice or in your daily routine or in your whatever you're missing and you have to fix and then I think I kind of had to learn that <laughs> in an early age Oh, okay. I don't I don't have a teacher now, so what do I do? Okay, I know these things. I can practice those things. <laughs> I can try to make those things better. I, I started composing at the time. So I don't know. I yeah, I I did figure out how to learn things by my own at an early ish age. Not super early one. It's it was good. It was useful. So you decided to take responsibility for your own education in some way because you realized that you had to do it on your own? I mean, I was very young, so it wasn't a very conscious decision, I would say. It was more like, I don't know, I just did it. Does it make sense? I just did it. It makes sense because I think when we're young, especially, we have very good instincts and we don't always have the life experiences that make us reflect as much. We kind of do things more if they feel right. Exactly. Yeah, it felt right at the time. And then it became a life experience. And now I go back and see it. Oh, OK, I was alone. And what did I do? I just kept doing things, kept producing things. So 
now it's a life experience for me. <laughs> Was it composing that led you towards the path of conducting? Yeah. So I studied composition in undergrad. And <laughs> that's also a coincidence. So there was this class called post-tonal harmony and you learn about post-tonal harmony and then at the end of the class you compose a piece for the ensemble of the musicians that are taking the class. It's like a composition workshop but you learn the harmony of the piece that you're going to compose at the class. Well anyways, the composers of that class were rehearsing their pieces and then next room I was practicing piano for my other class and then they wrote pieces that they weren't able to follow so they needed a conductor and they knocked my door and asked if I can beat four for them that's <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't beat five <laughs> I could only beat four anyway so I said yes okay so we rehearsed and they realized that they needed a conductor during the concert too. I was like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so I did. And then apparently at the concert, there were professors from conservatory that has conducting degree. And they told my professor that I was talented and I should come and study in their conservatory like be a guest student and I said oh yeah that sounds great (laughs) (laughs) I did I went to the conservatory for two years and then during those years I learned a lot it was a great learning experience and then I got accepted to New York to master's degree so the three-year conservatory that was the Mimar Sinan fine arts Yeah. And then you went to New York to study at CUNY. Yes. I didn't graduate from Myanmar. I was there as a guest student. That's what they call it. It's pretty self-exploratory. You're a guest <laughs> student. You don't have a diploma or you don't have credits, but you learn. You're allowed to get oh. in. And, you know, I was conducting a lot and stuff. So, yeah, I'm very appreciated. Actually, I went to Vimarsnan a month ago. I gave a seminar there. <laughs> and apparently, so I didn't know who that person was. I just knew a person told my professor that I am talented and I should go study at Vimarsnan. So I went to their composition class to give a seminar about composition <laughs> and conducting and I learned who that was he was like oh that was me <laughs> so the person who played a hand in your fate and well changing your future when you were younger you finally met them yeah I mean I knew him I just never knew that was him his mm. name is Oskan Mama it just I, I never knew who that was and he was like, oh, I think that was me. <laughs> that was great. That was a great reveal for me. <laughs> it's also a good example that we never know in our lives what we do to really help people or change their lives in a positive way when we you know, do something good for them. We never know what it's going to lead to. And it's when you're 
a conducting student, they always tell you that, okay, every time you're on the podium, you have to do your best because you never know who's watching. And that moment of my life was the concert that I knew nothing about. <laughs> I knew nothing. I just knew how to be four. <laughs> and that moment, that was it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there were other moments, but yeah. What was the adjustment like when you went to New York? So you went from living in Turkey to living in New York. Now you live in South Carolina. I do. <laughs> What's it been like to live in these three different places? They are very different. <laughs> well, first, from Istanbul to New York wasn't a very big adjustment in terms of living in a big city. Because I think Istanbul is even more chaotic than New York. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. But I think so. But... I mean, moving to another continent, moving to a different culture, different country, it's, it's very, very hard. And I, I can only realize this looking back. I didn't really understand at my first year how much of an anxiety that it gave me trying to learn the language, trying to learn the culture, also starting a whole different new school not only just a different school, but also a different practice because I studied half conducting, you know, but I never really, it was the first time I actually was in a conducting degree and I was trying to learn everything in a different language. So the first year was incredibly hard. And of course, I didn't have money, which led me to do the internet campaign crowdfunding fund my school I feel like just every other month there was a crisis <laughs> that I had to uh, the first month like just getting there was hard and then oh my god I think the second month I was finally able to find my apartment and then by the fourth month I was leaving that apartment because I had terrible roommates oh and then fifth month, I went to a new apartment in the city. And sixth month, I realized that we had bed bugs. Oh, no. Like, also, it was around that time when I was starting to do the campaign. Like, it was just like, <laughs> it was crazy. In the first six months, so many things happened. <laughs> and then finally, second year, I was like, my brain was not as busy. And then I was learning a little bit more. But then master's is only two years. So <laughs> you're out. You learned as much as you can. But I was lucky. I was lucky enough to, I don't know, learn and do a lot during that two years. I think it was kind of because of New York too, because there are a lot of opportunities like about learning in New York. And then... Because of those opportunities, I assisted Donald Portnoy when he was in New York, who invited me to South Carolina. That was going to be my next question. How did you end up doing your doctorate in South Carolina? I assisted Donald Portnoy, who was the director of orchestral studies in University of South Carolina. Oh my God, that has a story too. I was in North Carolina in Eastern Music Festival, I was conducting there. Like I was a conducting fellow, like student. 
And then I got a call from my support nurse because we talked about it before. He told me if I wanted to come to South Carolina for doctor degree. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. Sure. And then I got a call and he said, oh, want to come? And I said, yes. And then he offered me some stipend and credit hours and stuff. But then at that time, I was making more money in New York. I now had experience. I knew that when you move, your first year is very important because you don't have network. You don't have people to pass you work, gigs and stuff like that. So your first year, you need a chunk of money or a salary or something, monthly income in order to just move. Otherwise, you're going to be broke and get into fundraising. (laughs) (laughs) So I told him that money that he offered wasn't really enough, unfortunately, and I couldn't live there by my own. And I didn't know anyone in South Carolina, so I really couldn't do that. I said, okay, he said, and he hung up. And then 24 hours later, he called me again and said, oh, okay, about double of what I said (laughs) yesterday. (laughs) I was like, okay, I'm coming. And that was, I think, like, towards the end of July. So by 1st of August or something like that, I went back to New York. And I think I booked my flight ticket to 15th of August or something like that. So I had only two weeks to find a subletter for my apartment, for my room, sell all my stuff, (laughs) find a house in South Carolina, book my flight and everything. I was just, I was crying every day. (laughs) Oh my God. It was crazy. Only 15 days to just move (laughs) again to somewhere else. (laughs) That sounds like a very action-packed two weeks you had there. It was crazy. (laughs) That was in 2016, so it's been four years, yes. Ah, So I was in New York from 2014 to 16, and 16 to now, South Carolina. I'm about to finish my doctorate. And how have you found living in the South? That was more different, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I've never lived, well, I have lived in Dapcha for one and a half years when I was 12, but I was with my mom and stuff. I never lived in a small city. I was actually calling it a small town when I first moved in, and they were getting offended by it. Now I'm not calling it. It's a small city. (laughs) Because for me, now that I lived here for about four years, It is now a small city for me. I think it's a decent-sized city. (laughs) I got used to it here, and I love it now. But my first year, it was a different experience. Mm -hmm. I never lived in a place where there wasn't reliable public transportation, for example. Or, I don't know. It's very different. It is very different. But once you get used to it, though, you have so much time to practice and study and be calmer. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Now I go to Istanbul or New York every once in a while. And then it's just like even walking in the street is very anxious. Everyone's like walking faster. 
the pace is in general faster. I don't know. I don't like it anymore. I like this better. <laughs> I have more well, time for myself. I can understand. I think in the big cities, the speed of life is moving very quickly. Everybody wants to achieve something. They're afraid they'll miss out. So there's a lot of um, quick movement and a lot of people. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have discovered what they call the Southern charm. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm a Southern gal now. so you in the meantime including all of your studies where you were in turkey and then in new york and now south carolina you've still made time to conduct orchestras around the world you have to kind of (laughs) so you conducted at the wiener concert house and the palai eschenbach two of the places i saw and i was like oh i know those places How did this come about? I think one thing about conducting is that you just have to make yourself available and create opportunities because when you are learning, when you're in school, no one really, unless you're like discovered and, you know, lucky kind of, no one really is going to give you opportunities. Like, oh, okay, did you just graduate? Here are some <laughs> positions. No, not really, not at all. In fact, you're going to apply and get rejected from everywhere at all times. So that was all of these things that I did. I either applied or kind of found a way somehow, especially when I was in school. It's just... You just make it happen, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and then when you do make it happen, you gotta make sure that it's a good job, mm-hmm. so that you can be reinvited, or you can use the footage, or the recommendations and stuff like that for future things. So you kind of, it's like blocks. You build it up. That makes sense. So it's not like people are handing things to you on a silver platter, like oh come come conduct here, come conduct here. It's sort of like you need to make connections and talk to people and use the opportunities that you do get and grow from them. Yeah. I'm curious to hear about the nuances of conducting, like, for example, at the Wiener Concert House. Can you talk about what that experience was like, what it was like to meet the orchestra, how you prepare for that? Well, the Vienna Concert House concert was also a summer music festival. So I knew the orchestra. It was a student orchestra. And I worked with them like during that whole month with different projects, but I knew everyone. So it wasn't as intimidating as conducting the Vienna Symphonica or something like that. (laughs) But it was still like a glamorous experience because you're rehearsing in one hall and then I don't know crazy famous people rehearsing in another hall at the same time (laughs) and then you go on a break together at at the same cafeteria area and then you just talk oh what were you doing oh I was just conducting Beethoven downstairs what were you doing oh okay I was just conducting Strauss upstairs oh okay great (laughs) and then sometimes they go downstairs and then listen to you and then you go upstairs and listen to it. And you know, that thing that when people say, oh, you have to make sure that you're doing your best all the time. 
it's really true because they do come downstairs and watch you conducting. I met incredible people that month. Incredible <laughs> people that month. It was so inspiring and I still I still see them. Well, it sounds awesome. <laughs> it was really awesome. It was very inspiring. <laughs> what is your experience like conducting the older classic, for example, Beethoven and Brahms, where a lot of people are very familiar with the music, versus more contemporary classics where the audience maybe wouldn't know the music as well. Is it different for you? I feel lucky because I studied composition in my undergrad. So I had the chance to analyze a lot of different music both classical romantic baroque but as well as modern post-romantic post-tonal contemporary styles of music so i think i have the ability to understand newly written music well and i feel like especially if the music is written in the years that I was alive at, <laughs> starting 1991, <laughs> <laughs> I think I understand them better in a weird way because, not weird actually, because I feel like the sounds in the music is something I can relate to more because the composers or let's say compositions that were composed starting 1991 to today have the sounds of the world that I was born at. I know these sounds. I can relate to those sounds. I can understand those sounds. And I can guess what that sound is. For example, I have to actually think more creative when I, I don't know, listen to Wagner, for example, or Mahler, let's say, because I have to think about what kind of sounds we had around that time. For example, Mahler has a lot of train sounds, train horn sounds in his music because around that time, it was like right after industrial era and stuff. So there was a lot of train sounds. And sometimes he has this like major third and minor third gesture. It's with horns. I hear that now in South Carolina (laughs) because my house is very close to a train crossing Uh so trains are like always honking their horns and sometimes it's a constant honk not like just bump 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 but it's like a sound (laughs) and when they're close it's a major third (laughs) to be very (laughs) very theoretical it's a first inversion major triad chord (laughs) and then when they get further away the major third kind of I hear it as major third becomes a minor third. Same thing happens in Mahler symphonies. It's crazy. It, it sounds just like trains. And I could only understand that after living in a smaller city, close to a train station. I couldn't hear that before. And now I understand Mahler better. Uh-huh. It sounds like you're saying that composers, for instance, are composing things in their time and part of the era that they live in, the society sort of gets embedded in their music. Of course. 
Yeah. Does it I happen mean, in your compositions as well, you think? Of course. I feel like it's impossible to have that. Unless you're trying really hard about being absolute. But even if you're trying that, I feel like you're listening to your contemporaries, you know. It's very hard to be not influenced by the sounds that you have around you. Especially something like art, where when people produce it, they're also producing it based on the sounds around them, but also the way that society functions, what else is popular. Sort of like like a book can stand on its own. You can read a great book. It doesn't matter if you know the history of when it was written. But once you understand that, you just are able to see the nuances so much more clearly because then you see the connections and what influence certain things. Yes, exactly. That's the beauty of art. That's what I love about art. You have the choice to not get deeper. But once you do get deeper, you can. Mm -hmm. You can do that too. And you can learn about the history. You can learn about the theory. There are so many levels that you can discover. You can learn about the artists themselves. There are so many things that you can discover in one piece of art. That is fascinating to me. <laughs> I think it's also really interesting, the artist and the artwork, and to see how the depth of it that becomes clearer when you research more when and how it was created. Exactly. It's very, very inspirational. Inspiration is like a fuel to me. <laughs> I have to have inspiration. Because sometimes, no matter what, like things get boring, monotonous, or like very bureaucratic time to time. And then <laughs> as artists, we get bored with bureaucracies. I mean, I get bored. <laughs> I don't know about you. But I get really, really... I feel like I want to quit sometimes because of certain bureaucracies. It's stupid. And then when I feel like that I either go to like a museum or try to listen to music or read a book or something something that can just <laughs> give me some inspiration I need uh -huh. that just <laughs> and then I feel better I feel way better mm -hmm. so those are your sources of inspiration yeah yeah sometimes I'm unable to understand that I'm feeling trapped in like some sort of like a vortex but once I do realize I tend to find some sort of inspiration source for myself and then I immediately start feeling better it's, it's <laughs> and one of the things apart from being a part-time historian which you it sounds like you are when you study music <laughs> One of the things you also have to be really good at is memory, because if you're up there conducting, you have to keep an entire score in your mind. How do you do that? Yes and no. You don't really have to memorize everything. But this is what I think. The score becomes like a graphic score during the rehearsals and concert. You look at the details of every part of the music ahead of time. So... The detail-oriented analysis happens way before the first rehearsal. And then, then the score becomes like a graphic score that just reminds you things. Because some music is just so long and you can't, there's no way to 
remember and it repeats and then some sections are very similar to each other so you don't really know where you are at but there are some music for example it's just for example it's very fast and the score is not conductor friendly <laughs> so you have to change a lot of pages all the time like because it has a lot of orchestration and there are a lot of notes one page has i don't know three measures and it's fast so six measures takes like i don't know six beats <laughs> if you're conducting it in one so you just constantly have to turn pages and it's impossible so you have to memorize there's sometimes like you just have to do it but if it's not like that you don't really have to memorize but every time you look down you have to know that it, there is a little bit of disconnection between you and the orchestra. So you have to be prepared for, there are certain passages that I always memorize. I know, I have to know exactly what is going on. And there are certain moments that I cannot turn page because it's so silent, for example, or there's no music or something like that, or between movements or something like that that I have to contain the moment, you know? So yeah, it's somewhere in between memorization and not really. (laughs) (laughs) And the art of knowing what you need to remember, what you'll be able to review and what you have time for. It's sort of like you have a pattern and you need to work out, these are the places where I need to do this, these are the places where I need to do that. And then you have an overall view. Yeah. Well, that's for concert, of course. For rehearsal, is way different. I mean, you have to rehearse every single thing. And then I mark my parts. Like, I have these little sticky notes. And I just, I just kind of put them on my score during the rehearsal. So I know what went wrong. <laughs> and I can go back. <laughs> so I don't have to like put it in my, I, I don't have to remember everything. I can just put it on my, it's very practical. Is it very stressful to conduct an orchestra? Depends on the orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> it can get stressful if you're guest conducting. Let's put it this way. If you're guest conducting, you never know what to expect. I mean, you can have an overall expectations. But it's kind of, who knows? (laughs) Just go blindly. And then you just do your best. And if it's not my orchestra, I can't really do much about the quality of the sound. I can only do so much, you know? So you just make it happen somehow. But sometimes you go to great orchestras too. And then it's so good. It's just, (laughs) it's it's like driving an amazing car after driving not an amazing car. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like if you're going to conduct somewhere and the orchestra is top-notch, then they're going to be very professional and they're going to respond really well to you and you're going to have, most likely have a very positive experience. Yeah, I mean, and it saves time too, because then I don't have to stop and talk about my gestures, because they can read my gestures. And then they mark their parts immediately. So I don't have to say those things. And it's so great. And it's so smooth. Uh, I love I love those orchestras. 
even though conductors have traditionally been male, it doesn't sound like that's an issue for you when you step up with a professional orchestra. Well, <laughs> it's not not an issue. <laughs> if I was able to conduct that orchestra, if I was invited to a certain orchestra, that means that orchestra does not have an issue with me. Does it make sense? It's kind of like if they had an issue with me, I wouldn't have the chance to conduct them anyway. So I never know which orchestras have an issue because I'm not invited to them anyway. <laughs> if I am invited to conduct that orchestra, that means they do not have an issue with me. And which doesn't mean that they are sexist. Sometimes they might have an issue with me, particularly, or they might have an issue with females. That's a whole different thing. But crazy words are out there about female conductors. And it was like two years ago, very famous conductors gave speeches about how female conductors are just to get more views and stuff, just to get more audience. And okay, not really, but okay. <laughs> not okay, actually, not okay. Let's put it this way. And so we're fighting with that. We're fighting with that all the time. And I love that, especially since the Me Too movement, all over the world, they are not silent anymore. And our voice is being heard even more. I know in some fields, women have to be better than men if they want to reach the same position. They've got to be, you know, really tough. Do you think that it's like that in some cases in conducting still? I do feel that way. I mean, I'm also Middle Eastern, so I feel that double <laughs> because I feel like there's always this like urge in me to, in order to be in the same level of a European or American, I need to prove myself to them that I deserve or so. So yeah. Of course, whenever I'm on the podium and if there are like other people, men are watching, I just I feel that I have to be perfect or as perfect as I can be. And I feel the same thing about sometimes not being white, because that's also a thing, unfortunately. Sometimes I don't know. Well, that's the problem. These things are so behind the doors now that like it's so subtle it's very very subtle so I can never know what's happening behind the curtains I only know if they are not sexist and racist mm. because then they are communicating with me then they are inviting me then things are positive but if they are not I don't know if it's because of sexism, racism, or is it it's just because we didn't match well. That could be a very well reason too. I don't know. So. Well, it's not like they're going to come right out and tell you that in the age that we live in. Maybe 50 years ago, sure. Yeah, but exactly. Especially after the Me Too. Mm -hmm. Turkey is both Europe and Asia. From what I understand, do you feel Middle Eastern? Do you feel European, if I can ask you? Well, I don't think what I feel matters much. <laughs> we are Middle Eastern, aren't we? 
Do you think you're perceived as Middle Eastern? I don't know. I never thought that. I think I'm just from Turkey. Turkey's <laughs> complicated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I hope it's okay. I you Istanbul, that. So what I can say is I'm from a bigger city. You know, the big city culture is more diverse. So I never felt like I am. I belong to a certain culture. You know, it's more of a big city culture. It's the same in New York or Istanbul. That's where the two cities I lived, big cities I lived. But mm-hmm. I mean, I felt the same thing in other different cities where I went. It's the same big city culture. Mm, I see what you mean. It's also very mixed cultures in yeah. big cities also. I was just curious because you referred to yourself as Middle Eastern. I just wanted to understand how you would interpret that. But it's hard to interpret it in any one way. And you don't know how other people, different people could say, oh, you know, she's European or she's Middle Eastern or, yeah, you don't know. Well, that's a kind of a unfortunately interesting thing, too, because depending on your skin color, Sometimes people can name you Middle Eastern or European. And sometimes, Mm. yeah, because, I mean, they can't really understand my accent because here in the United States, there's no Turkish stereotype just yet, not like Europe. They can't pinpoint where I'm from. But they always say something like, oh, Eastern European. I don't know if they they can't guess Middle East I don't even know uh, maybe there's not a fully developed Turkish stereotype in the US that they yeah, can there, refer there, to there isn't but they never say any country from Middle East you know they never say that so I think that's kind of a thing too I don't know these are all observations that can mm. be well thought deeper <laughs> thought but I tend to just let it go, mostly. I think you have to, right? Because in the end, we can't make everybody happy, and we just have to do our best. Yeah. I mean, yeah, unfortunately. Because I have my own agenda, and I (laughs) I have to (laughs) follow it, and I'm not very available to think those things. And if I do... I wouldn't be able to practice enough or study enough. So I have to do those things. I think that you're going to be very famous in the next few years, that you're going to reach a level of fame that maybe you don't even anticipate based on what I can see from you and how quickly you're growing. And you were saying you are happy about it now, even though you didn't used to be. Yeah, it was a scary thing because when you're in music school, constantly you're learning about these amazing musicians that existed and you're analyzing them they become your hero and you think that comparing to them you're nothing and you don't have the right to come out and make your voice heard because you're nothing comparing to them and that's where the entitlement artists entitlement comes because At some point, you just have to accept the idea of you are who you are and come out and make your voice heard because that's when you are able to reach to a crowd. And then because of you, 
because I am able to come out, they will discover the music. They will discover you, but mostly they will discover the music of the amazing people or me or some other people, but they will discover it. And that's what's happening now because of the, all those YouTube things, videos that I do. People are discovering classical music and they're very happy about it. So I'm like crazy happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you learn to experience that entitlement, the artistic entitlement? So normally, you know, entitlement is considered as a negative word. But artist's entitlement is actually a positive word because you have to have a certain level of entitlement in order to say, okay, this is my art and I'm going to make this art visible, audible by others. That, especially now in 2020, kind of takes a little bit of confidence, unfortunately, because they will comment on it and you will see it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just, you know, spoken comments. It's now everything is written. So sometimes it hurts. But in order to have anything, to put anything out there, you have to have a certain level of entitlement, artistic entitlement. Otherwise, you won't be able to put anything out. You won't be able to produce. You won't be able to compose in any medium so having the entitlement is hard or was hard a little for me but now that things kind of got out of control of me (laughs) (laughs) things are happening I kind of gave up at some point and just like I don't really regulate things and I can't really regulate it anymore So it's just out there. And then I realized that, okay, you know what? It's a weird thing. It's not like not having standards is the wrong. That's what I have. Like, oh, I have to lower my standards in order to be accessible or popular, something like that. And it's not really like that. You don't have to lower anything. You are who you are. You can't lower yourself anyways. It's kind of impossible. But you just change your language or be more accessible. And then the only hard part still for me, just sometimes when you're accessible, you're accessible to anyone, you know. (laughs) I don't want to be accessible to anyone (laughs) just yet. (laughs) I'm not there yet, but I'm learning. By accessible, do you mean anybody can contact you or people recognize you on the street? Or No, anybody can comment on anything. That's, oh. what, that's what I mean. I mean, mostly I'm lucky. I mean, my YouTube followers in Instagram and, and anywhere mostly, like 90, 95% positive comments. And they are very nice and very respectful and everything. But sometimes there's just one idiot hater. Mm-hmm. That just like decides to write eight paragraphs uh, about how terrible and ignorant I am. <laughs> like, why? I have four degrees in music. <laughs> I think that there are some people, very few people in the world, but there are some that get a sense of power from criticizing or being mean. 
and that they'll find people in all walks of life and sort of when you're in the public eye, they will find you because they'll find everyone. They probably go from your Instagram to someone else's like, oh, what can I make up to criticize here? It's a good day for me, two in one day. (laughs) I started understanding that in Twitter because you can actually see when that person joined Twitter and then who they are commenting to. So you can see a pattern if someone's a troll or not on Twitter. (laughs) But in YouTube, it's hard because you can see how many followers they have. But most of the time, YouTube people, unless they're creating content, they don't really have followers anyways. But you can't see who they're commenting to. So you can't see if they're haters or not, or trolling or not. So learning. (laughs) Well, I've also gotten some criticism for my podcast recently. Most of my feedback is positive, but I had some people like, going on about how they don't like my voice. It kind of was freeing in the sense that I was like, well, if they don't like my voice, okay, I can't really change my voice, so it's not my problem, but it it hurts a little bit. I'm like... I know, and did you watch the South Park episode about Yelp reviews? (laughs) There's an amazing South Park episode about, like, Yelp reviews and stuff, and then there's this super serious troll. I mean, it's like, when you say that, I can immediately think that, oh, that comment to your channel is stupid. But when it's on my channel, I don't think that way because it's to me. (laughs) No, I have to stop everything and think about it for 24 hours. (laughs) It's not that much, of course, but it affects me. It still affects me. So I don't. But like recently, I watched an interview of Emma... Watson, Emma Watson. I watched an interview of her and she was saying, basically telling how to deal with hate comments that come to her. And I'm like, who would say anything bad about Emma Watson? You know, like, even if Emma Watson is getting hate comments, then it's okay. I'll take it. it. They can hate me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really convinced that it's a small part of the population and they just go around and they do that to everybody and it's like their their way of fun in life or something. Just, also, you have to have a lot of time if you decide to write an eight-paragraph hate about a total stranger. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you have any methods that you're using to kind of brush off these comments? Because on not unfortunately, but the more famous you become, the more attention you attract. And if a small amount of that is negative, very small, if you're attracting, you know, 5 million people, it's going to be more than, you know, 50,000 people. And do you have any methods for kind of letting go of that stuff? No, (laughs) not a systematic (laughs) method, at least. But I mean, I kind of talk to my friends about it if it really affected me but recently I got to meet this very super famous person and we talked like only a little bit and even in that little bit of a conversation there was this one phrase about like hate comments or something like that and this person is very famous and this person's been very famous since forever. 
And from that comment, I realized that, okay, you know what? Even he is thinking that and he's been famous forever. And so this is a thing. This is like everybody reads comments and everybody gets nervous or upset or something somehow with the comments. So I have to find a way that it won't affect my life. So I'm trying at least to not affect me. Mm. Sometimes it makes me upset, but it won't affect how my life works or like my content or whatever I want to put up, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's good because like what I do, especially what I do on YouTube, it's a very, like I talk about music classical music and how to listen to it. It's kind of like a music appreciation 101 class. <laughs> but it's in Turkish. It's about classical music. And I have like 10 videos or something. So it's very, it's not really popular just yet. But even with that thing, I started getting a lot of views. Well, you've got 24,000 subscribers on YouTube. So yeah, that's crazy. pretty easy. Yeah, and I only, only 10 videos. Ago. Yeah, that is, wow. It's crazy. And that opened up so many opportunities of interviews, TV shows, so many things because of that YouTube thing. So, I mean, why not? So that's like your sense of entitlement, saying, hey, you know what? I actually know a lot about music. I can probably teach people some stuff. Guess what? It didn't start as an entitlement. I wish it did, but it didn't. It started as, this also has, oh my God, everything I do has a coincidence story. <laughs> it's full of coincidences. Okay, this is the last thing I'm going to say. And I'm going to go. So when I was in second year of doctorate degree, I took a class called Bernstein. We were analyzing his music as well as we were analyzing his, like, spokesperson personality. And one of my homeworks was to create a video of me talking to the camera and explaining something. So I made a video about Tchaikovsky to second movement. And it's in English. I'm in front of a piano and... It's still there. I'm not deleting it. It's so stupid. (laughs) It's a a homework. And it's like a five-minute video. And I decided to just, I don't know, put it up on YouTube. And you can see this. It was like 2017 or something like that. Last year, 2019 summer, somebody from Turkey, a producer from Turkey, approached me and said, oh, hey, I watched your video. And that is very promising. Do you want to... And it's it's not promising. I, I promise you it's not <laughs> I don't know how he thought that. <laughs> do you want to do that kind of content, but in Turkish, and we can maybe air it on TV? And I was like, oh, okay, let me try. And I tried. And my Chopin F minor Nocturne video on YouTube is the video that I tried. It's like a five, six minutes video. And I just talk about it just a little bit in Turkish. I wasn't even going to, oh my God, yes, I remember that. 
So I just sent that to the producer. And then I kind of liked it. So I sent it to my other friends. And they said, oh, why don't you post this? And I did to IGTV, Instagram. Because I was not on YouTube. I was not on YouTube. And then people started tweeting it. Got a lot of retweets. And then people started saying, please post it on YouTube. We can't watch it on Instagram. It's very hard to see it on Instagram. I didn't post it. I made another video about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony's beginning. And then that got retweeted a lot. And then I think finally I posted it. Posted those two on YouTube and posted another third video or something on YouTube. And then it got crazy. (laughs) It just got crazy. And none of these things were planned. It was just like, oh, oh, well, first it was a homework. Okay, I'll do it. And then this person wanted a video of me. Okay, I'll do it. And then people started tweeting and asking me to do more. And then I started doing it. So actually my entitlement didn't really come because I was feeling artistic entitlement. No, it was more like people actually wanted content from me. And then I started producing. I wish I had the entitlement. I could have started earlier, but I didn't. But now that I did, I'm just going to continue. <laughs> well, maybe you needed the experience of learning what it's like to, you know, take up space and really own it. And now you got more of the experience of what it's like to feel the entitlement. Maybe you didn't start it, but you feel it. And it helps you learn how to move forward with it in the future. Even if it didn't originally come from entitlement, it can help build the sense of it. Exactly. I mean, this is something that I think about a lot these days, the artistic entitlement. And we are very creative people and we just have to believe our creativity and kind of like keep going and do things, create things. People out there doing content, they are not necessarily creative. But I mean, we literally learn how to be creative. And I have multiple degrees on it. So, I mean, and this should encourage all others. Well, thank you so much, Nissan. And my parents were so excited about me interviewing you. So they are going to be the first people to listen to this. That's great. That's great. I just say hello to your parents. (laughs) Your dad was a conducting student at New England, right? Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's amazing. I want to hear that. Well, they met in music school, so, you know, without music, there wouldn't be me. (laughs) Right? See? That's the beauty. That's the beauty of music schools. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't wait to see more of you and what's coming up for you. You're so talented and so charismatic and intelligent and funny and beautiful. It's been, like, just an honor to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a big fan of yours. <laughs> what is next on the horizon for you? What projects are coming up for you? Where can we see more of you in the future? My God, 2019 was crazy. So many things happened. I would never guess. And they all happened when I was not expecting. Just like I didn't really ha- expect any of those things. And then the music directorship, the second music directorship. <laughs> and then my second assistantship, the Mexico debut, Smithsonian debut, 
also premiere, the Forbes 30 under 30 thing. So it's just, it was crazy. And 2020, because of 2019, started crazy. <laughs> started so crazy. I went to Turkey for one month. And when I was going to Turkey, let's put it this way. When I was in Turkey, the day one of 30 days, I had like, I don't know, six things planned. I ended up having like 25 things <laughs> in that 30 days. So my family was a little upset with me because I didn't have time <laughs> at all. So I'm going back now for 10 days and I, I have about six things planned. <laughs> Who knows what's going to wow. happen. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, for 2021 season. The thing is, it's just... There's one thing that I can't tell yet, but if that happens, all my 2021 is going to change. So I'm just, there will be like one or two months that I'm, I'm going to be waiting. <laughs> if that happens, oh my God, I have to move again. <laughs> but it's, it's a good move. It's going to be great. But if that doesn't happen, it's great too, because I have so many gigs planned out, so... <laughs> well the best way for anyone listening to keep on top of what you're doing is to follow you on your instagram right is that yeah your my instagram or i mean if you want to follow the concerts yeah that instagram or just my website nisanak.com works but yeah it's, yeah instagram <laughs> <laughs> i'll put a link to it in in the notes <laughs> thanks <laughs> Well, I can't wait to see more of what's coming up for you. I was checking out your Instagram and you're just on all these talk shows. You're just exploding. That one month I was in Turkey. They're all from there. Wow. Well, I'm waiting for you to come to Berlin soon. I'm waiting to see you at the Berlin Philharmonie. (laughs) Uh, That would be great. That would be amazing. I'm sure it's just a matter of time. and I'm going to be seeing you there. (laughs) Oh, can't wait (laughs) it's it's not super soon but why not (laughs) I can't wait to see what the future holds for you Nissan thanks so much thank you very much Caitlin nice to meet you again okay nice to meet you bye I highly recommend checking out Nissan's Instagram her username is chillharmonic spelled out c-h-i-l-l H-A-R-M-O-N-I-C or you can visit her website nisanak.com spelled out N-I-S-A-N-A-K dot com.